BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey guys, and welcome back to the Dream Bigger podcast, and thank you for tuning in. So on today's episode, we're getting real. We're talking boobs with double board certified renowned plastic surgeon, Dr. Adam Kolker. Dr. Kolker specializes in boobs and we get into everything from what to look for in a surgeon to common mistakes to the differences between different kinds of boob surgeries and so much more. This episode is juicy. For those of you who are new here, I'm Sif and I'm the founder of Ice King Glitter, which is a blog, Instagram page, and YouTube channel. As you may already know, I love bringing you information from the experts because education is really our biggest asset. Plastic surgery is no different, and some of you may have questions about getting procedures done, whether it's a little Botox or a boob drop, or maybe you're in the other camp where you're judgmental about people who get procedures done, or maybe you're somewhere in the middle and just curious about this area in general. The key here is information. The more we talk about these things, the more educated everyone becomes, and the more things can stop being a big deal. I can never get over how it's all fine and good when someone gets a lash extension, but people have their panties in a bunch if someone gets a boob job. If you are thinking about getting work done, I would hate for you to get a bad boob job, which is why I'm so excited to share this conversation with Dr. Kolker, who tells you everything, literally everything you need to know about boob procedures. So without further ado, let's get into our conversation. All right, Dr. Kolkler, to start, tell us how you got into plastic surgery. It's an excellent question. So like anything else, when you follow a passion, there's sort of always a genesis point. And for me, it was A, coming from a family that is very, very doctor heavy. So there are a lot of members of my family that were physicians, surgeons, et cetera. And I actually was exposed to medicine and surgery firsthand um, through that. And my first taste of it, actually, I got when I was in seventh grade, where I actually was lucky enough to be able to go into the operating room. No way. Way. For what, though? So it's really interesting that, um, you know, that my father is a surgeon, my uncle is a surgeon, um, uh, I've got a number of, uh, my brother is a surgeon. So there are a lot of surgeons in our family, a lot of, um, uh, other internal, you know, sort of, uh, primary care specialists as well. Uh, but when I was in seventh grade, I actually saw a vascular surgical procedure, which isn't obviously what I pursued specifically, but being in the operating room and seeing how you can actually take someone who's really an extremist in a really, really difficult situation and literally improve their life, change their life in, in a heartbeat, in a day. So um, that was just one of the most compelling and amazing things for me. So I was hooked, 
very, very early. And runs in your blood. <laughs> it does. You know, you think that there's some genetic portion of this, but um, uh, but I was really, really lucky to actually be in that environment to be able to explore this. So really up through high school, there were a couple of times where I thought about other things other than medicine. I thought about marine biology. I thought about architecture. But uh, I ultimately got on track to go into medicine and ultimately surgery. And when I went into general surgery, which is what you would do after completing medical school, um, I actually had the intention of becoming a heart surgeon. And I did four years of general surgery before I got to my chief year and my fifth year. But in the fourth year, I did cardiac surgery for three months. And I really, really loved it. Um, it was incredibly life-changing. Um, it was very, very meticulous. There was a ton of finesse. Um, it was uh, just a, an amazingly powerful um, specialty. But what I found after doing it for three months, it was really much the same every day, that there really was, there are some variations on a theme, but they were really very narrow. You're really in a really tight niche um, in doing that. So that's the time that I started thinking about some of my other passions, which I was always, uh, which were I was always a studio artist. Um, I did a lot of painting, a lot of sculpting, a lot of music um, growing up, uh, and I actually pursued that as a passion when I was an undergraduate, getting a fine arts uh, degree as an undergraduate wow. as well. So it dawned on me uh, about four years after medical school that it was really the union of surgery and improving people's lives, but also integrating that um, with the artistry um, that, uh, that, that led me towards a career in plastic surgery. A hundred percent. I always say that like there's such artistry involved with like plastic surgery because I don't know, like, I don't even know how you guys do it. Like you, it's literally like sculpting. It's, it's wild. It, it is. And one of the things that's, that, that's really amazing is if you think about stretching a canvas and using, um, you know, priming and using oils or acrylics, or if you think about sculpting, it's just in many ways, it's a different medium. Um, and plastic surgery really is that, you know, plastic, actually, the, the word plastic surgery actually comes from the Greek plastikos, which means to form. So a lot of times people think, oh, what does plastic really mean? It sounds very superficial, but it's not. Um, plastikos in Greek means to form, and that's sort of the specialty in which um, you focus on both form and function. But the beauty of it is that you can actually do it from head to toe, meaning that there's not one area of the human body that's off limits to a plastic surgeon. Wow, that's incredible. So how did you, like, you're an expert on breasts. So how did this come to be? So I want to say that uh, breast surgery, aesthetic surgery and reconstructive surgery is a very, um, you know, sort of exciting and challenging and gratifying um, niche for me. Um, I think it's because of those challenges that, uh, you know, that, um, that, that inspired me to it. Um, the the symmetry factor really is one of the things that's quite amazing. I think that there's a, the, you know, I, I hate to say obsessive compulsive, but there's, you have to be really, really meticulous um, when you do it. And one of the things that I found is that um, not only can you take someone from a particular place in their lives and elevate that, um, but it's also a, a very, very challenging, um, you know, artistic undertaking as well. It, it poses very, very unique challenges sculpturally and three-dimensionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and like to do it well, I feel like it's 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 an art form literally because we all have heard about like bad boob jobs, you know, <laughs> and no to question. see like, you know, like someone doing an excellent job, like definitely it takes like such artistry to accomplish that. No question. But I'll tell you, it also takes a lot of work. And totally. um, 
you know, I've been in practice now for 20 years yeah. and <laughs> no small feat. <laughs> and, and it's, but it's, it's a, it's a labor of love. And when you follow your passion, you know, we, you know, we can talk about the idea of perfection and we always strive towards it. And does anybody ever achieve it? And the whole idea is once you feel like you've figured something out that you've got it wired and you understand it and you don't need to grow anymore, that's when you stagnate and that's when things fall apart. And that's one of the beauties of plastic surgery and breast surgery in particular is once you discover something new, there's always room for those tiniest, tiny improvements to make things even better. Love that. So what is the difference between breast augmentation and breast implant for someone Mm. who doesn't know? So they are much the same. So when we talk about breast implants, when we talk about breast augmentation, um, Breast augmentation is enlarging the breast with an implant. So they're really part and parcel of the same process. Um, There are a number of ways that you can actually achieve breast augmentation. And the most common by far is by using an implant. So breast augmentation is most commonly done with an implant. The two main types of implant are saline implant and silicone implant. Saline implant up through 2006 was the most common in the United States. And then a moratorium was lifted and silicone implants were reapproved for widespread use. And silicone is now... Uh, the, uh, dominated um, uh, in the United States in particular, world over it does as well. So implant-based augmentation really is the most common. Um, over the last several years, there's actually been a newcomer to the breast augmentation um, discipline, which is autologous fat transfer, which is using your own fat. And fat transfer is an exciting field in the sense that um, the more we learn about this and the more we perfect the techniques, um, the better the results are, the improve, the, the more um, uh, safety we achieve with these treatments as well. The one difference, and this is the main one, um, is that there is not as reliable um, an increase in size that you can achieve with fat transfer. As you'd imagine, the numbers may be meaningless, but assume you take a 100cc implant or a 200cc implant or a 300cc implant and you, um, uh, and you create a pocket and a place for it to live within the human body and you know that there's a very reliable endpoint um, from your starting point. With fat transfer, it's a little bit different. The reason for that is because the fat, when you do transfer it from one part of the body to the other, and it takes the same way a graft does, like a skin graft or a cartilage graft, but fat grafts have to be taken in such a way that they're prepared meticulously and then placed into what we call the recipient site in such a way that the fat takes as a graft. You can't put in too much. The less you put in, the more takes. But you have to find that sweet spot where you put in just the right amount that you get an achievable increase in size, but not too much that you undermine the existing fat's ability to take as a graft. So in comparison, when we talk about a small implant size, that may be in the neighborhood of about 150 cc's. What I find with autologous fat transfer, which is using one's own tissue or fat to go from one part of the body to the, to another, uh, particularly in the breast in this case, is we can usually achieve somewhere in the neighborhood of about 75 to 100 cc's of graft take over time. Initially, it will look much fuller, but over the course of about a year, that um, it, it does tend to atrophy or dissipate a little bit. So what that usually means when we're talking about non-implant augmentation is that you may need another procedure, that at some point in the future, you may need to go back for a touch-up. So basically, like with an actual implant, like a foreign thing being inserted, like that would be a one-time sort of situation, whereas fat grafting, you could need to come back. So the answer is yes, but with an asterisk. Okay. And that asterisk is that I think a lot of times people have the misconception that breast surgery in any form 
um, implant in particular is a one-time deal. Right. And in fact, it's not. Mm -hmm. And one thing that everyone who's considering breast augmentation needs to understand is that assume someone, um, let's take a, a situation that may be simple, balanced, shapely, A cup that just wants to go to a B cup. The chance of that individual needing another surgery in 10 years, this is with an implant, is about 25%. Oh. At 15 years, it's about 50%. At 20 years, it's about 80%. And wow, why? Why is that? So we're talking about a man-made device that goes into the human body. Now, these are very safe, FDA-approved devices, and when um, placed um, conservatively in expert hands, um, the chance of experiencing any risk or complication or a negative outcome is very, very small. But over time... You put an implant in, it's going to be subject to the same laws of gravity that the rest of our body is. And also the way the body interfaces with an implant um, uh, is going to be different than the way it interfaces with itself or with its own tissue, so to speak. So um, at 10 years, there is a chance of a leak or deflation of the implant. There is a chance of something called capsular contracture, which is when a scar shell forms around the implant. But then there are a number of other things that come up over the course of 10 years. Things like weight gain, weight loss, desire to be bigger, desire to be smaller, pregnancy. That's one of the main ones. So it's not always an objective thing that requires somebody to go back to the operating room. But there's another thing that people need to understand, and that's when we talk about a saline implant versus a silicone implant. A saline implant is filled with saline water. It's a silicone elastomer shell, which is like a silicone rubber that's filled with saline water at the time of the actual procedure itself. A silicone implant is a cohesive gel that fills the implant that's pre-filled that um, is placed at the time of surgery. If a saline implant leaks, let's assume it's in year 10, let's assume it's in year 20, you know it. So assume you've gone from an A cup to a B cup and then the implant leaks, you notice immediately because that B cup goes back to an A cup. It may not be in one day, it may be in a week or two, but your body absorbs the saline water and you know that there's an issue with the implant. With Mm -hmm. silicone, it's different. So a silicone implant leak or deflation um, is going to be silent, meaning you're not necessarily going to know it. That's why the FDA recommends that all women that have silicone gel implants get an MR scan, an MRI at some point in the future. The current recommendations were actually three years from the time of initial surgery and every two years thereafter. That's an excessive number of MRIs. Um, The current recommendations are going to be changing probably to somewhere between five and seven years as a baseline, and then probably another scan closer to 10 years and every two to three years thereafter. Got it. So also I have been reading like on Instagram and there have been like certain people who have like spoken about this where like they, um, they've had issues with like their, their like new boobs basically, or not new, but like they've had their implants in for a while and they've had like some sort of issues and they need to get it taken out. This is off. Like this is an extra question, but yeah, just still wanted to ask. Yeah, of course. So there are a lot of things that we talk about in terms of the upsides and the downsides of Mm -hmm. breast augmentation. It is a very, very safe procedure and it is a very, very effective procedure at really tremendous improvements in people's lives. But there's always been a question and it really dates back to the late 80s and early 90s where the original form of silicone gel implants that were made of a silicone oil that could leak, meaning that when the implant shell became compromised, the silicone oil would leak, and it would cause some local nasty problems, um, and they'd need to come out. But there was a big concern that these were causing other things like 
autoimmune issues, lupus, collagen vascular disease, connective tissue disorder, fibromyalgia. And it turns out that there was uh, a moratorium in the early 90s that was placed that, as I mentioned, was lifted around 2006 because all of the existing data that was available to the FDA and the scientific bodies that oversee this suggested that there's no correlation between silicone implants and any medical issue that we know of. Silicone in a shell, silicone out of a shell, etc. So cut to 2006, silicone implants in particular, but implants in general have been on the rise in terms of their use in the United States. In 2018, which is the most recent large data set that we have, about 313,000 women had cosmetic breast augmentation using implants. It's a large number. But there has always been this question about, is are implants truly safe? And all evidence that we have suggests that it is. There is no data that suggests any causal association between implants in any form and any medical issue that we know of. Nevertheless, there are people who do feel that their implants may have been associated with the development of something, and the something I put in quotations, mm -hmm. uh, meaning is it auto an autoimmune issue? Is it that they're feeling tired? Is it that they're feeling achy? Is it something that on a rheumatologic panel, um, which are blood tests that specifically look for certain factors, that's occasionally they may be elevated, occasionally they may not be elevated? But the big question is, is there really an association? And science does not have enough data to connect those dots. Unfortunately, science does not have enough data to disprove it either. What mm -hmm. we do know is that when you think about autoimmune issues, and I mm -hmm. think this is if what you're asking about in terms of you know, the questions that have come up in the media lately about the safety of implants, is it does seem that the association of autoimmune issues and implants is is hypothetical, but if you think about it, women are nine times more likely to develop an autoimmune issue than a man is, and men don't get implants. So is this a coincidence or is there real science there? So the short answer is we're working on it. Right. Um, and as much data as can be collected and science as can be applied to this, um, all of the um, associations and societies and scientific bodies that we have within the field of plastic surgery um, are looking very closely at this. All of the implant manufacturers are looking very closely at this. But the um, existing data that we have really and truly suggests that they are very, very safe. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really fascinating because, I mean, you see, like, the large majority of women who have, like, gotten augmentation or implants of any sort, like, they seem to be, like, so much happier with their bodies, which is obviously why they went through it to begin with. And then you have, like, a small number of people who are saying that, like, they had to get it taken out because of whatever um, autoimmune diseases that have, you know, happened as a result of this according to them. So I'm really interested to see like the research develop. As, as am I. Yeah. And you know, it's really interesting as well because there are some women that choose to have their implants taken out and mm -hmm. their symptoms go away. Yeah. And there are some women that choose to have their implants taken out and they don't. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's not unique to silicone implants. It's been reported with saline implants as well. So the big question is, is there really an association? And, um, you know, I, 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 I can't wait to find out more of the data as it comes in. Yeah, definitely. Okay, switching back to like the specifics of surgery, what is a breast lift? Like, is that different from augmentation and implant or is that like the same thing, just a different name? So they can be, they are exclusive, but not uh, exclusive to the point that they can't be done together. So there are a number of things that 
um, would inspire someone to choose a breast augmentation, for example, somebody that did not develop breast tissue as they would have liked. They may be in the A range, they want to be a B, they are in the B range, they want to be a C, etc. That's an augmentation. That's when the breast um, has not sagged or drooped. Um, and you can have those things developmentally, meaning congenitally, meaning that some women are actually born with breast shape that sit a little bit low on their torsos. Um, some women um, develop that after weight loss. Some women develop that after pregnancy, and that tends to be the most common. Um, there's a term called postpartum glandular hypomastia with ptosis. And the translation of that is after pregnancy, the breast gland can involute, meaning you can lose some of the volume, and it can droop. So a breast lift to your question, um, is a procedure that lifts the breast, and it does it in several ways. One is you think about two elements of the breast. One is the fill of the breast, what fills the actual skin itself, and then you think about the skin bra. And if you think about many cases of breast droop, there can often be a loss of breast volume on the inside, and there can be a laxity or a stretching of the actual skin bra. So breast lift usually takes care of both of those, where you can actually tighten the breast internally, and then you can tighten the skin bra on the outside. So that doesn't require any like external implants or does it? So it doesn't. So it oh, depends okay, on how much volume you're starting with. And got what it. that means is if somebody is starting with a C cup mm -hmm. and they feel as if they've got ptosis, P-T-O-S-I-S is the technical term for droop. Okay. If they have droop, whether it's on one side or whether it's on both sides, and they've got a C cup and they want to stay in that range and not be larger, they do not need an implant. So implants do help in several ways in conjunction with breast lifts when there's a significant loss of volume and that needs to be restored. That's where an implant comes into play. The other part of it too is there are certain times where the volume is appropriate, but people are interested in improving what we call the upper pole, which if you think about the breast as if it's a globe and you think about the equator line that passes through it, you've got the southern hemisphere and the northern hemisphere. So we usually refer to the breast as having an upper pole and a lower pole. And there are certain times where there's not enough available tissue, even though somebody may fill an appropriate cup size, a B cup, a C cup, what have you, uh, but wants more upper pole fullness, that's when an implant comes into play as well. Oh, fascinating. So how, how is it that you consult on sizes? So there are, a number, there are a number of ways that we do this. So in choosing the right size for an individual, what that individual articulates on the first visit really is most important. Are they looking for something that's fuller but natural? Are they looking for something that's very conservatively fuller? Are they looking for something that's on the border between natural and unnatural? Um, having that discussion is, is really the starting point. The next phase of the process is actually the measurements, and it's really important um, to see a board-certified plastic surgeon, of course, when considering doing this, um, that an in-person clinical examination, which tests a number of things in terms of the density or um, or lack thereof of the breast tissue, the the uh, distensibility or uh, elasticity of the skin, and then the measurements of the actual breast itself. That's a very, very important determinant of how big the breast implant should be because you want it to fit the individual's body and you want it to fit their desires. But then when you get to the sizing itself, there are a few ways to do this. And the way that I find that's most reliable is to use temporary sizers. So there are pre-filled sizers that can be of, of 
any variety um, or material, we tend to use silicone sizers, whether somebody's choosing a silicone implant or a saline implant, that come in different increments, where you may try on a 150cc implant, you may try a 200cc implant, you may try a 250cc implant on in a bra, and this is just over the breast. And that really gives a reasonably good estimation of what someone is looking for. It's not the final be-all, end-all in what the what the implant choice is going to be, but that really gives us a good determinant about the, the range. There's another way that we can actually get through this step in the process, and it is with imaging, where you can actually image and do um, effectively a glorified photoshopping of the actual um, images themselves. Um, and there are a number of different programs that are out there. The one that I prefer when used is something called Chrysalix, um, which can give you a three-dimensional estimation of what an implant looks like. Do I think that this is a really reliable way of establishing to the, to, to the CC what the size of the implant should be? And the answer is no, I don't think so. I think it's more of an aid in giving, some, giving someone a visual about um, the, the, an estimation um, or a simulation of what they can look like afterwards, but never to be used as the exact number. The final choice is actually made in the operating room. Mm. And that is something where, and it's very difficult for a lot of people that just love to control every part of their lives and every part of the process like this, um, is that you have to trust your surgeon. In yeah. my practice, um, my patients leave it to me to make the final choice. Mm -hmm. The way that's done is having gone through all of these different maneuvers before the procedure, once the pocket is created, we use something called a temporary saline sizer. And what that is, is effectively it's a saline implant that I can fill on the table in the operating room and then have the head of the bed come up and take a look and see what the breast looks like. If it looks consistent with what their desires are, fits the frame, is a safe size that's uh, conservatively sized and is appropriate, then that's the neighborhood. But still, we get to try a little bit more, a little bit less um, to make sure that we've gotten the right size. Once we've done that, then we choose the final implant size. Very interesting. So what is the recovery process like? Like, is the scarring permanent? Like, how does all of that work? Excellent question. So the scars, yes, they are permanent, but they tend to be minimally perceptible over time. Um, and with breast augmentation in particular, there are three main scar locations that we choose. One is within the crease beneath the breast. The next is within the junction between the pigmented skin of the areola and the lighter skin around it. And then the third one is what we call a transaxillary approach, which is an incision in the underarm. Got it. So any of these incisions in the majority of cases are quite small. Um, they tend to be in the neighborhood of three centimeters to four centimeters or thereabouts, sometimes smaller depending upon the implant size or the implant style choice. Um, but any of these incisions, although they are permanent, um, they do fade quite a lot over time. With a breast lift, on the other hand, these are procedures that do involve seams. So remember we talked before about the amount of breast fill, whether you're using the existing breast tissue, um, whether you're restoring some of the breast tissue with an implant, but what we're always doing um, is we're tightening up the skin bra. The way to do that is actually with seams, um, and those seams translate to scars. Most often those are an incision that are around the areola, um, which is a circle around the areola itself, and then occasionally like a lollipop where a vertical line comes down from the areola to the fold, and then in cases that require them, a small incision or a moderate incision in the inframemory fold, which is the crease beneath the breast. Um, so that's the, the short answer on incisions. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of the recovery, um, 
It depends, meaning that when we're talking about a breast augmentation, the rate-limiting step, regardless of the incision or whether we're doing a lift with an implant, mm -hmm. um, involves the discomfort that people feel after the elevation of the muscle. So in virtually all of these cases, we lift the pectoralis major muscle up, um, which is the breast muscle. Um, it tends to be the safest, most reliable place to put an implant because it camouflages the upper pole of the breast that we discussed and makes it look more natural. It puts more of your own tissue above the implant itself. It also minimizes one of those downsides that we talked about, which is capsular contracture. The downside of it is that it can be a little bit more sore than putting the implant above the muscle. Mm -hmm. um, so the muscle really is the rate limiter. So in general, I usually recommend that people take off anywhere from five to seven days from work or school or normal activities of daily living. Um, and the main reason for that is, is it possible to try to squeeze yourself into a rapid recovery type of process? And the answer is you could, but it doesn't make sense because... I mean, it's surgery at the end of the day. A, it's surgery, and B, these are things that, you know, this is a process that you want to last for a decade or decades, plural, mm -hmm. and a few days on, on the on the front end of it, um, I, I think, are immaterial, and I really recommend that people really take it easy up to that seven-day point. Yeah. Is it possible to go back to work for most individuals at seven days? certainly, and some can go back sooner, maybe at five or six days or thereabouts. Is it possible to do push-ups or take a run <laughs> at seven days? The answer is no. Um, I usually recommend that people start doing light cardio between 10 and 14 days afterwards, meaning non-bouncing cardio, no running, no planks, no Pilates, no yoga, no chest press, no let pull-downs, no military press, anything that involves your pectoralis muscle you want to take it easy with for at least four to six weeks. Okay. But you can do quite a lot of exercise, core, squats, lunges, light impact or low impact cardio, things like elliptical and stationary bike and walking on treadmill, all of those things you can do right up through the four to six week point. And then we graduate um, to more involved exercise and activity, slowly but steadily increasing to about the 12 week point. Got it. Okay. And I also wanted to talk about breast reduction. Um because like I actually heard someone told me that if you get it done and then you get pregnant later, like your boobs grow back. So do you recommend it? First of all, is that even true? And do you so there is no crystal ball about how the breasts are going to change with okay. a pregnancy? Yeah, except the consistent um, the consistency of in all likelihood, they're going to change somehow or another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, occasionally breasts get bigger after pregnancy more often, as I mentioned before. Um, that glandular hypomastia, meaning the breast gland will involute or get smaller. So it's a little bit more common that the breasts decrease in size, but they can increase. Mm. Um, the skin can stretch afterwards. So the big question is, is it appropriate to do a breast reduction or any breast surgery for that matter before pregnancy? And the answer is you have to be well-educated or well-informed beforehand because there's always a chance afterwards that you will need an adjustment. But, um, Depending upon the procedure you choose, most of the heavy lifting is done with that first surgery. So sometimes it may be just as simple as just a little bit of a revision surgery to tighten up the skin bra, for example, or to change the actual breast volume. Because if you have gone from um, an A cup to a C cup or a B cup to a C cup or something in that neighborhood, and then there's a breast gland change afterwards, you might need to adjust the actual implant size. Um, but these can tend to be relatively simple procedures. Got it. And what is a mommy makeover? That's another good question. So mommy makeover really is um, is a catch-all phrase or, or term that describes the combination of breast um, enhancement or restoration after pregnancy 
and addressing the tummy as well. Most commonly, um, it's either a breast augmentation and a tummy tuck or abdominoplasty or a breast lift and a tummy tuck or abdominoplasty. Occasionally, it is a breast reduction or lift um, with some other abdominal contouring, whether it's suction lipectomy, which is liposuction, um, or some form of abdominoplasty, which is a tummy tuck. Got it. And the recovery time for that, is it like even longer because it you've can, had... It can be. Yeah. And the one thing to be very clear about is not every woman is a candidate for the combination of these two surgeries mm. because there's a certain amount of time that you need to spend in the operating room with any surgery and you don't want to be in there for an entire day. Yeah. Sometimes breast procedures can take four to five hours if it's a little bit more of an asymmetry case or there are um, technical or um, uh, you know technical challenges or complexities. Um, and a tummy procedure is usually three to four hours or thereabouts. So depending upon the individual's um, uh, uh, health first and foremost um, and the amount of work that needs to be done in each area, it may be advisable to actually stage these procedures mm -hmm. where um, one is done first and the mm -hmm. second one is done at a later date, potentially 12 weeks in between is not uncommon. Um, but if you think about the recovery for a breast procedure, and as I mentioned, many of them, the primary recovery is usually about a week. And if you think about the recovery for an abdominal procedure, and most often when an abdominal procedure is done in conjunction with a mommy makeover, it's clearly a mommy who's had a pregnancy, right. it usually involves correcting something called a diastasis, which is a separation in the two rectus abdominis muscles, which are the sit-up muscles. That recovery is usually two weeks. So when you combine the two procedures, assuming you've got a week's recovery for the breast procedure, you've got two weeks recovery for the abdominal procedure, it's not additive. The smaller recovery, which is the breast recovery, is absorbed in the larger tummy recovery. So it's two weeks, but it's a harder two weeks. Yeah, I bet. Because a lot of times when you sit up from lying down in bed, you're using your core muscles. And if you don't have your core muscles to use, assume you just had an abdominal procedure, you're going to use your arms and you're going to use your pec muscles. But if, and vice versa, meaning that if you're going to sit up, you can use your core, but you're not going to have a, an easy time using your arms if you've had a breast procedure. However, if you do both together, you're going to have both of them out of commission. So it's a little bit more difficult in the first days to a week afterwards. Most mm -hmm. women that do the combined procedure need a little bit more help at home for the first few days. Yeah, I bet. I mean, that's like, that's pretty major. Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> a lot. So do you, like, what are some common mistakes that you see when it comes to plastic surgery? So the, the quick answer to that one is, is too big or too done. And I think that, you know, there is, you know, there, there are regional differences. Meaning if you look at when we're talking about breast, for example, if you look at, um, at women's individual size choices in the Northeast and you compare that to South Florida or Southern California, they're going to be different. And one of the things that I find is that they tend to be when you choose implants, for example, that are a little bit too large for your body, um, is they tend to be more unnatural looking. I think that, um, that overdoing size can tend to, you know, predispose to an unnatural look, but even worse, it can also have a safety impact as well, because the bigger the implant, the more the problems. You're going to stretch the skin more. The weight of the implant is going to be subject to the same laws of physics that everybody else is. Gravity always wins. So I think that um, that probably is one of the first mistakes is making um, something too large. The other um, thing that I find too is there 
has been a tremendous uptick in non-surgical treatments. Um, and when we talk about facial aesthetic surgery, body aesthetic surgery, let's talk about the face for a few moments, um, is it's become very, very easy um, to do um, non-surgical rejuvenation of the face. And when we break up the non-surgical rejuvenation categories, you can break them into three. They all start with R, which is really convenient. There's relax, which is a neurotoxin like Botox or a neuromodulator. Um, there's refill, which is refilling lost volume, which is um, the hyaluronic acid products. Many people know these as Restylane or Juvederm are two of the most common. And then the third one is resurface which is any kind of chemical or energy modality that can rejuvenate or improve the skin. Um, when we talk about um, overdoing, it's possible to overdo in this neighborhood as well. And I think that people sometimes end up chasing their tails by thinking that you're not supposed to have a line on your face. You're not supposed to have a shadow anywhere. And I think that's a misconception because if you think about a baby, um, babies are full of hyaluronic acid. Babies are full of, you know, good youthful fat. Um, but when they smile and animate, you're going to see lines and wrinkles. They just go away really quickly because they, they're not etching into the skin. And I think that, um, that we tend to feel that when we start to show a little bit of age, um, that it's a big problem. And I think that it's totally appropriate to minimize them, but not to erase them. Um, one of the things that I find is that filler works really, really well for blending um, aesthetic subunits of the face. And what does that mean? So the filler works great when we lose volume. So the cheeks um, in the area just sort of, um, you know, just beside the eyes and um, in, a, in, in the cheek zone, we tend to lose volume as we age. And I think it's reasonable to restore some volume there. But other areas where we see aging are when we see distinctions or transitions that are more stark between the cheek and the upper lip. We call that the nasolabial fold. The jowl and the chin the lower eyelid and the cheek, that's called the nasojugal fold or the tear trough. These are areas that in many cases are amenable to smoothing with a filler. But I have a feeling that, that you've seen this many times as everybody has. It is very easy to overdo this. Totally. And I think that that's one of the other mistakes within the realm of cosmetic medicine and surgery is that people just tend to overdo a little bit. And I think that tighter is not more youthful. Tighter is not better. Um, fuller is not better. Bigger is not better. Better is better. Safer is better. Natural is better. I totally agree with you because I do see this trend now where like everyone almost wants their face to look like it has a filter on it. But I see these like young, like 20 year old, 21 year old girls like getting these procedures done. And then I feel like it ages them, right? Like I feel like it just takes away from their like natural, youthful look. It absolutely can. And one of the things that we talk about with filler in particular is filler, and the most common ones, as I mentioned, are Juvederm and Restylane. Um, the hyaluronic acid fillers are, are crystal clear, non-animal derived hypoallergenic gels that are wonderful, and they do tend to dissipate over time. They tend to last for 6 to 12 months, depending upon where you put them, mm -hmm. and depending upon the degree of cross-linking of the gel itself, uh, meaning how cohesive or dense it is or how thin it is, depending upon where you put it. But there is some data that suggests that it doesn't go away as quickly as we think it does. And there's also some data that suggests that it, when you put it into the soft tissues of the face in particular, that there are a lot of things in the face, the soft tissue that we're enhancing, but there are a lot of vessels that are in there, arteries, veins, that those can be problematic if they get in there. But over the long term, in terms of um, what people can look like, is they can actually clog the lymphatics, meaning that, that people talk about lymphatic massage and making sure that your lymphatic mm -hmm. system is draining appropriately. Um, people can tend to look puffy if they've had too much salt or had too much to drink or didn't get enough sleep. 
the lymphatic system is really, really critical and integral in making us look more youthful. And it's really, um, uh, you know, it's ironic and a paradox that some of the things that we use to make us look more youthful, like fillers, can actually work against that natural system of clearing extra fluids within the tissues. And there can be a look that people get, which is filler face, mm -hmm. which is you can literally look overdone. And part of it is because you put too much in. The other part of it is it can clog the dermal lymphatics and the subcutaneous lymphatics that are in the area, um, and sometimes irreparably. So wow. you have to be very conservative. And one of the things that you mentioned is in terms of doing this in 20s, for example, is it's totally safe and reasonable to do it mm -hmm. when done with a gentle hand. Yes. Um, when used in the appropriate doses, the appropriate amounts, I think that things like Botox, for example, um, you know, you can use them um, uh, in a preemptive fashion. And we're talking about simple things like lip fill. Mm -hmm. um, um, with the right dose and with, um, you know, the right technique, it can be very, very effective and done very, very safely. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I think it's, uh, just to echo what you're saying, like, I think it's just so important to like go to the right person so that they're not overfilling you and making you look like filler face. That's absolutely saying. right. So in this case, actually, um, where maybe you're seeing someone like a client of yours, they're coming in and you know, it's just you're seeing that they're going overboard. Like, do you do you tell them? Like, how do you deal with a scenario like this? What's the protocol? There's not a day in my practice where I don't say no to something. And I think that, you know, for young plastic surgeons that are just starting their practices, um, for residents and fellows that are getting ready to go out and do that, I think that that's one of the things that is probably, if I had to teach them anything, um, you know, as, uh, you know, in, in a professorial role is, learn how to say no. And it's very difficult to do that um, because a lot of times people have some very clear ideas in their minds um, about what exactly it is that they want. And it's not necessarily what it is that they need. And sometimes when those two don't match, I think it's really important for the plastic surgeon to counsel that individual on what is safe and what's appropriate. I love that. Like, I, I think it's so, like, this is why I think it's, you have to be so picky about who you go to because I think that so much of it is like teamwork and getting someone to like tell you, hey, no doubt, <laughs> like, relax, pump the brakes. <laughs> yeah, that's like, exactly let's, right. Let's, let's just wait here yeah. for a second. And and it's and it's not always a, a hard and fast no. It's a pause. Yeah. And they may have had treatments before. They may simply not be ready for another. And let's right. review in six months and see what things look like. And, you know, we'll take a look then. And I tend not to make any promises. And we usually just kind of take it on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, whatever we see in the moment based on what an individual's desires are and what the clinical examination shows, then I'll usually just create, a, you know, the, the balance in, in the scale and figure out what the benefits of a treatment are and what the risks or downsides are. And it's the same with a facial surgery. It's the same with a breast surgery. It's the same with body contouring procedures and it's the same with um, something as as quote-unquote simple as fillers or injectables and I think people oversimplify them and they shouldn't be oversimplified mm -hmm. they're real medical procedures and they can have um, negative sequelae or consequences so um, so people need to be informed um, and really well educated totally so nowadays like especially when we look at celebrities we're like we're having this moment where you almost can't tell if someone has had work done or not. And that's obviously attributed to a, a good doctor, right? So like, how can you ensure that your procedure goes well so that it's almost like, oh, like 
obviously like you know people can't tell basically no question well the the first and foremost communication with the individual is the most important because sometimes you know meeting an individual's goals um you know they may be asking for something that's a little bit more unnatural or something that's a little bit larger than um than you meaning the plastic surgeon feels is appropriate in their individual judgment um but once surgeon and patient are on the same page and the goal is and this is my favorite this really is the holy grail which is did she or didn't she meaning enough to really improve someone's self-esteem how they look and feel in clothing in bathing suit um, getting in and out of the shower i mean that's really the place where it's most important Um, and when somebody sees that individual the did she or didn't she is really the place that you want to be, but nowhere past that. Yeah. Not she did, um, you know. And I know that some people do desire that, and we respect those, you know, those those opinions and those desires for sure. But um, uh, in in my practice, certainly, we really try as hard as we can um, to to you know to hit that sweet spot of of um, looking as natural as possible. And I think that if we're looking at any trends in plastic surgery over the last decade or thereabouts is, I think that there has been a trend to more natural. And I know that there are the outliers of, um, you know, of, of more extreme, but I think that, uh, what I find in my practice is that the, you know, that there's been a groundswell of people that are looking for more natural. And in terms of technically how to do that in the operating room, um, meticulous attention to detail, precision with technique, um, choice of small inconspicuous incisions, um, very, very gentle handling of, of tissue, um, you know, all of the, you know, all of the technical points that just are, are creating the most gentle um, interface, um, you know, of the surgical procedure that we're doing and the individual's physique. Mm-hmm. So if someone is going in for surgery, or looking for a plastic surgeon, what are some red flags, would you say, like when someone is trying to find the right person to go to? Well, you know, to the point that we were talking about, I think that you have to be careful with somebody who says yes to everything. I Got think it. that's number one. I think that one of the most important things is that um, that try as hard as possible, particularly here in the United States, to find a surgeon who is certified by the American Board of Plastic Surgery. It's very, very important because there are a number of quote-unquote boards out there that certify physicians that may not be plastic surgeons, but the lay public does not know the difference between um, between one and another. So I think that that's a very important one, ABPS, or American Board of Plastic Surgery. Um, they should also be members of the American Society of Plastic Surgeons. They should also be members of the American Society for Aesthetic Plastic Surgery. These are some very, very basic criteria that individuals should look for when selecting a plastic surgeon. I think the next order of business is meeting that surgeon in person and um, making sure that you that that the that you as a patient and he or she as a surgeon, um, you know, really uh, align with 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 the goals and sort of share kind of a you know kind of a common vision for the outcome. Um, and I think that really striking a rapport with a surgeon is super important with this. Totally. Yeah. Um, so that, this is my last question, Please. but you know, we just discussed the, did she or didn't she as a plastic surgeon, do you have an eye to like be able to tell, okay, no, she did. So the answer is <laughs> most often yes. But, um, again, going back to the, did she, didn't she, a, a lot of times you'll see something that's just out of place. Um, and too large, too filled, 
too tight, that's very, very obvious. And the ones that are more subtle are sometimes difficult to see. Um, you know, and I think about, uh, you know, having seen the Academy Awards a few weeks ago, um, and there were very few, um, you know, presenters on that stage that did not have something done. And mm-hmm. some of them looked a lot more subtle and some of them didn't. Um, and you can spot them. I think most of the lay public can kind of pick them out as well. But, you know, in, in doing what I do, I think you can see some of the telltale signs a little bit more easily. So cool. Thank you so much, Dr. Adam Kolker. It's been a pleasure. Tell everyone where they can find you. Instagram, website, all that jazz. So my website is www, people still say that, (laughs) drkolker.com. And uh, Instagram is Adam R. Kolker, MD. Amazing. Thank you. Sif, thank you so much.